Hello and welcome to this week's episode of BWB Extra, where we continue our conversation with Courtney Finger, Editor-in-Chief of Investment Monitor, who opens up to talk about all things FDI and globalisation, the very personal topic of Russia's Ukraine invasion and the effect it's having both economically and personally, as well as discussing the links between social media's manipulated disinformation economy and the general state of civil unrest we're experiencing across the world. Welcome to The Economies of War. So that's what's different about it, that you, what, you go from data and trying to make observations or? Correct. Okay. Does that make it less reactive as a news publication? Yes. Well, we we do what we would call rapid reaction, which is we're not breaking news and we're not covering news. So we're not going to tell our readers something happened. We're going to tell them what it means for international investors. So we will react to major events, but we try to take a a sober view on what it all means, look at what the number, um, what the data will reveal about it and make our analysis and try to make sense of it. So the principle being that there are people concerned with international affairs, your one investment monitor suggests it's, 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 you know, investors are obviously people very concerned with international affairs. And those people are looking for publications which can give them a sort of guided overview. I mean, is there, a, is there someone doing exactly what you do, as it were? You know, is this a common thing people do or not? Well, in the space, very particularly covering foreign direct investment, there are only a few. Yeah. Um, we take a slightly broader view uh, on what we mean by investment. We mean mainly where where companies operate. We're not talking about stock market investing, for example. Yeah. But we're also looking at institutional investment and everything that surrounds the landscape for investment for companies and institutional investors. And there are different publications that cover different aspects that we do, but there are very few that cover that, I guess, that exact topic. And, and, and just to explain to people, because FDI is a term that we're all kind of familiar with here because um, Louis Clark uh, has been involved in FDI for many, many years. So, But foreign direct investment is basically any company or any organization investing in another country. Correct. Okay. Or, or expanding their facilities in another country. So if you maybe um, expand an office in Germany and add 50 new employees, that is an FDI um, Activity, and arguably this is a byproduct of globalization. Correct. And globalization is kind of back in the news as like, oh no, is it over? Kind of thing. I mean, have you got a view on where globalization is? Are we just? It's not over. It's just it it shifts and changes shape over time. So if you take FDI as the purest measure of globalization. We saw crashes in FDI activity, but because of COVID, and now we've seen an extremely strong rebound already last year. So companies are still expanding into new markets. It's just the patterns, the reasons, the logics change. What we're seeing at expense of globalization is greater regionalization, but not retreating behind national borders, just consolidating things uh, within regions. So for example, serving Asia from within Asia, serving Europe more often from within Europe. But that's not um, that's not globalization being over. That's just 
changing its shape, in my view. In it, I would argue it's almost becoming more global again. I mean, things become so China-centric. You know, I play this game that, that my, my mum produced even more cars at the weekend. My mum collects all these old cars we had when we were little to play with, and my son plays with them. And they, well, when you go back, to my, they, she's produced my dad's now, all made in Great Britain, you know? And then you get to the 1970s and 80s when we grew up. Obviously, we are much younger than that, but, you know, anyway. But, uh, and that was... A lot of British, but then Taiwan, Hong Kong, you know, and then basically you pass this period in time somewhere around early 2000, everything China, like absolutely no exception. And I, I just find that funny because all the cars have the where they are made on the bottom of them. And actually China's been very good at putting made in China on every single thing it makes, not how fucking small it is. Whereas it's not a requirement of other countries as it were, but I think that's changing and that's, you know, spreading it out again is not a bad plan. You're, you know? you're right about that because what it COVID showed and all the supply chain shocks associated with it showed the risk of over-reliance on, on any particular any market. Yeah. So you're right. It's a fragmentation um, aimed at spreading risk around. I mean, your publication now has, a, do you just stop talking about Russia for a while? Is that, <laughs> is that what you do? Like, Well, we're talking about it a lot because, of course, that has major implications. I mean, Russia was a fairly significant destination of foreign direct investment. Yeah, did you so, write an art paper about it two years ago and recommend it or anything? Like, you've only been going. <laughs> yeah. You've only been going. Like, take months. that back. That yeah. endorsement. No. Yeah. So we are we are not working obviously with Russia or any Russian entities, but we're writing a lot about it and, and what it means, and we're covering very actively which um, international companies, for example, are pulling out of there, keeping almost a a rolling list of those. Where do you think that's the wise thing to do? I'm slightly bothered. The whole principle of um, American empire building, Britain was sort of, you know, have you got a flag and, you know, it would be terribly nice and set up a post box and steal all your stuff. But the American thing was McDonald's, you know. Yeah, that that is was, an, I, I guess, of all the withdrawals from Russia in terms of symbolism, McDonald's leaving. And, and I remember, you know, I spent quite a lot of time in CIS countries and I've never seen more more busy impact McDonald's than I than I saw, for example, in in Minsk and places like that. So I do think it's it's a very complicated debate and dilemma as to whether companies should or shouldn't. I I think it feels to me a moral imperative to withdraw from a, a place like Russia that is committing such an egregious yeah, acts against humanity. I think where it gets complicated is. There are other countries where you can, how do you measure that? So there are other countries that, that are, for example, gross violators of human rights. So why are you there? Um, so that's not me saying companies should be operating currently in Russia. It opens up bigger questions about why are you ignoring abuses and, and, and horrible things that happen in other countries or that are done by other countries. It's a quite a fascinating philosophical It debate. is fascinating because it doesn't resonate with us so strongly, whatever reason. I, mean, I haven't met, I've asked lots of people, I've met a single person, I say, you didn't feel as strongly about Syria as you did, but we all know Ukrainians. We have, we have Ukrainians at work here. You know, I think I've known like one Syrian in my life, you know. Yeah, that's right. And that's related to that dilemma because you know, Russia was committing quite a few atrocities in Syria too, and nobody yeah. was pulling out their investments then. So there is a quite a subjective but also emotive response 
is it correct that those responses drive business decisions? I guess from, a, again, a moral perspective, yes, but it tends to be very arbitrary and that's where you get into complicated philosophical questions. But you've been in this space a long, long time. Has, has this been debated a long, long time or it's become, it's come more to a head of late? People are beginning to really look at stuff? It's it's become more of a topic, you know, because of the, the sort of, push for companies to have a social conscience um, is is greater than it used to be. I mean, and in terms of the the isolating of Russia from the international community and the the pulling out of so many international companies, I've 20 years of FDI, I never You've saw never anything seen, like that. Really? And yet, and yet You've never seen anything like this? No, not wholesale like this, no. But that suggests most of these companies are headquartered in Europe. Or America, and we, and it's the West, really, that Cor- we're familiar in brands. That, isn't it? Correct, and so it, it's 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 not black and white because you know there are many other countries that are not Western countries that are taking a neutral view. For example, a major countries like India, for example, yeah. where I was um, two weeks ago. South Africa. Yeah. China, of course, is is kind of maybe even, I guess, tacitly supporting it. Yeah. Um, and I, I saw an interesting um, survey of um, social media in developing countries and the number of pro-Russian hashtags, for example, are greater in many parts of the developing world than the alternative. Um, so you're right to to add the caveat that this um, pulling out of of investments and companies it's mainly um, U.S. Um, let's say North America and Europe, but that is significant because the U.S. for example, when it comes to what we call real FDI, meaning physical facilities of of companies or um, in foreign countries, not M and A, not portfolio investment. U.S. companies are the largest generators of outbound FDI. So if you do have a large-scale withdrawal of U.S. companies from any market, that has a big impact on the world of FDI because U.S. companies are still the most active foreign direct investors. And in their withdrawal, are they putting it anywhere else? That's what we're trying to figure out, yeah. This is such a complicated subject. I noticed watching as it kicked in, I mean, I was bursting into tears in front of the telly. My wife thought I'd lost the plot. And she was like, you know, anyway, hilarious conversations. But America, I noticed if you were listening to American stuff and podcasts, it took a while for Americans to even start caring about it, kind of, or to, to reach the news. Biden was talking about it and we were hearing Biden say stuff. But then if you listen to the dialogue internally, they were kind of like oh, you know, this thing's happened. So a bit like we would distance ourselves from Syria. Do you know what I mean? Correct. And it's, there are very short memories about it now, but, you know, in the impeachment, the first impeachment of Donald Trump, it all centered around him extorting President Zelensky for lethal aid that was needed to combat um, Russian aggression in the east of Ukraine. Extorted is, and he ripped him off for it. No, he said, you know, open up a bogus investigation of Joe Biden or you don't get these Javelin missiles that you need. Wow. And it's funny, not funny, it's, you know, darkly yeah, ironic. Yeah, it is funny too. It's yeah. darkly ironic because most of, let's say, the Republican Party and, the, and a huge, you know, a majority of Americans said, well, we don't care 
who cares if Ukraine gets Javelin missiles and it's all a witch hunt against Trump? And these are the same people, you know, U.S. um, senators who voted to acquit Donald Trump of that on the grounds that who really cares about Ukraine are now wearing blue and yellow flags on their lapels and saying, oh, we have to support Ukraine. And and Zelensky's now a hero, but nobody in the U.S. cared who he was. And these exact Javelin missiles are the ones that are helping to destroy Russian tanks. So I I guess as a as a long-term Ukrainophile, that galls me (laughs) in quite a profound way. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Clark got its start back in 1935 And while the world has changed a bit It's more than just survived From complying with the FCA And all things financy They can also speak fluently In the language of legalese Ori Clark was born and raised right here in the UK And now for 20 years They've been helping others get set up and on their way Ori Clark's door's always open and happy to provide straight talking financial and legal advice since 1935. Big shout out to Sean Veer Singh for a stellar jingle. You can find him at Sean Veer Singh Music on Instagram. And at this point, let me quickly remind you to give us a nice review, please, on Apple Podcast or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. Now back to the chat. Courtney is, you know, we, we've hung out many times and she has, you have deep roots and very funny stories about hanging out in Ukraine, as does some other friends of mine, a client, a good friend of mine who has a business there has been on this podcast. You know, people, they don't just like Ukraine, they love Ukraine, you know, so I mean... This is, what, affecting you tremendously? I mean, you've got a lot of close friends there. Is that right? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, it's, it's objectively terrible in all respect, but I do feel it so personally. It's, it's surreal. And the last time I was there, and I have been, you know, many times, it's of all the places in the world, I've always had the greatest emotional connection there. I can't mm. really explain why, but I've, always love the place. Um, I feel very bonded there. I have no familial roots there, but it feels the place on earth where I feel the most at home. And Did so you stop going for work? I started going for work, you know, let's say 12, 13 years ago. I fell in love with it immediately. And so I continued to go back. And of course, as a result, I mean, I have work contacts, but Part of what I love of Ukrainians is they bond with you very easily. So you're never just a work contact. You are a friend, a friend for life. And so I continue to go back for work for personal reasons. You know, when I got married, I had my hen weekend in Kiev, you know, attended by various, you know, Ukrainian mayors. Strippers. And, yeah, <laughs> mayor strippers. Mayor no, I'm strippers. <laughs> the best kind. I was the ex-mayor <laughs> in 1988. Have a look at this. Exactly. But it's always, um, you know, been a a key part of my life these these last years. And um, the last time I went, it, it hurts to think about it because I had my dream Ukraine trip in September 2019 where I went from across the country, first, first Lviv, then Kiev, then Kharkiv. And I know the mayors of all three of those key cities. And I met with them, but I met 
President Zelensky then. And it was just a dream trip. It was beautiful weather. These cities were on great form, everybody. It was just, I was so happy. And when Kharkiv in particular, which is a city in the east, in that town, there is a Courtney Fingar tree with a gold plaque that was planted by me and the mayor. That is how much... I am aligned with this place. Let's hope it's still there. And I had some of my best memories in that city. And of all, there were so many awful moments in this war, but where I spent some sleepless nights and what hurt me the most was when I saw the bombing and the destruction of the main square of Kharkiv. And I was thinking back to that day in September 2019 where they were having a public festival and it was so joyful and beautiful. I, I can't bear to think about it. It's just... Were the mayors all okay? Th- they are. Um, but, you know, I think it's a day, It's a day-to-day thing. So if, you know, it's kind of like if that, if they are safe right now, doesn't mean we can stop worrying that they might not be safe tomorrow or the next day. So it's a constant, um, it's a constant worry. But the good news, and it's it's maybe good news is the wrong thing, but they haven't lost. And and the surprise in all of this, and and uh, you know, I think Russians are some tough bastards, but Ukrainians, I mean, they don't create the Klitschko brothers for nothing. They're some tough motherfuckers. They and- are, and the Russians so fundamentally misunderstood the character of Ukraine and Uca- Ukrainians. But anybody who spent a lot of time in Ukraine and with Ukrainians. I guess, predicted I guess P- this. Putin yeah. mis- misunderstood. Putin's power has gone to his head. He thinks that he's in la-la land, you know. I mean, so the thing that I find really fascinating in life is that Zelensky, you know, the former comedian who made the piss, and he's like the perfect leader for this situation because he's real. Like, he's, he's, he's so real, he's a comedian. And the most real people in the world are comedians, you know, because, you you know, and, and you know, that's the piece of luck because he's rallied everyone like Churchill did here long ago, you know. Yeah, it's been, it's been really amazing to see. And, you know, he wasn't even wildly popular no. before, but it's been the making of him. He's been the, the absolute right leader for this moment. And it gave... You know, it gave a boost, but I think also it's the what I always loved about Ukrainians is they they are really made of tough stuff, but they're all heart. They're extremely passionate, um, and all of and and the ingenuity, everything that I guess the world is now falling in love with the Ukrainians about the things that you can see about them. That's always who they were. It's why. It's why I always loved to be around Ukrainians. There's something special to me. It's a bit like, you know, it's that Star Wars quote by uh, Princess Leia, but it's like, you know, the more you try and repress us or destroy us, the more powerful we'll become. And the the irony, life is never simple. You know, he thinks, you know, he's pushing in this direction. He thinks he's getting power. He's losing power. The thing that I find very difficult, I mean, not least, you know, I've found it very, for some reason, resonating with me. And I think a lot of people on this sort of very deep level, like weirdly thinking, I would go and fight. I'm happy to go and fight. Do I need to fight? And that's very male psychology, I think. My wife, like, with these two kids, shouldn't we, like, protect the house and, like, worry about But I now understand why men go to war because my brain, when it all started happening, I was so angry and emotional. It was like, but the thing, you're in the informational industry. 
But the world just got split in two. Maybe it always was, China and Russia. Russians, I know, are falling out with their friends. Uh, I saw my friend Yurati, and uh, she, I, I was telling her a story about my other client who's fallen out with his friend of 60 years. He's 70 years old. And she said, oh, don't tell me about it. I've just fallen out with my friend. I've had to block them on WhatsApp because they, they, they're they ashamed of me for believing the Western propaganda. They're, they're sending me the same pictures we're seeing saying this was set up by America. What the fuck? You know, why do we deal with this? Like, yeah, it's it's the disinformation scourge is is creating problems all around the world. But how do I even know what I'm reading is true? And you know what? A lot of it isn't. Yeah, there's know? no shared sense of reality anymore, and it's really dangerous. I, I would argue there wasn't a shared sense of reality originally. Everyone lived in their own little bubbles, and maybe that was okay because they didn't have nuclear weapons or something. I don't know. You know, it took a while to get places, you know, so by the time you got there, maybe you catch well, up. Well, I think what's different is that you can live in your information silos now. So if you think of the media, for example, or, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. as an example, in the 1960s, you had, I don't know, NBC Nightly News, and it was fairly dry. It wasn't really very ideological. So all Americans pretty much saw that news broadcast. This is what's happening, and you can make your sense of it. But now you can live in it because of social media, but because media is fragmented to where you have your right-wing news, you have your left-wing news, you can live in your entire information bubble and just consume constantly things of the worldview that you already that you already agree with without just watching or consuming anything neutral. Um, and that's where I think it's, it's become really dangerous. And that's why um, the public is now very polarized. I mean, between countries, but but more, more strikingly between them. And that's what I mean by no shared sense of reality. Even any event is not just covered that it happened. Again, you can live in your bubble. Like Facebook has a lot to answer for that because of the algorithms and how you get targeted and you just, people can constantly, there is actual disinformation and fake information, but you can also just get targeted by things that are reinforcing whatever biases, whatever view you already have. And therefore you come to believe that anything that counters that is in fact a lie. It's very, very dangerous. Do you feel there's anything we can do to help that, change that? I don't know. We have to tackle it because it it, it has so many scary outcomes and it's taking us to some pretty horrible places, but I don't know the, the easy the easy solution to it. It's against the law in this country, and I'm sure others, to incite violence. And and that's that's the power of these things, isn't it? That's what Trump basically got accused of, isn't it? That he's inciting a riot. And it's just... Um, it's only a riot if they think it's a riot. You know, it depends what side of the fence you're on. Otherwise, maybe it's, uh, you know, a, re a, re a defense or... I mean, that, that's right. And we saw it recently again in, in the U.S. where the most watched cable television program is a talking head on Fox and Tucker Carlson, who's become increasingly radical. He's not the same. He, you know, 20 years ago, he was a guy wearing a bow tie talking about flat taxes or whatever. And now he's realized just that there's money to be made from talking shit, talk, yeah, talking shit, but whipping up um, racist fervor. And it's a, you know, people are hearing nightly on Fox News about 
replacement theory. And if you constantly tell millions and millions and millions of white Americans every night that you are being, there is a grand scheme to replace you with brown people. And that is exactly what they talk about consistently. You think you need to do anything possible to defend that. So there was a you know, a a mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, of a guy radicalized by consuming that information who went to, chose specifically an area. He black area, didn't he? He looked statistically to see the highest kind of most concentrated black area and went in and started killing people. And it's because he became convinced of this, let's say, white replacement theory. I mean, you can say, oh, well, that's just one lunatic, but... People are being drip-fed. That has become a theory and a talking point nightly on the most-watched cable news channel in America, and that's dangerous. And so you could say that is clear inciting violence, but it becomes difficult legally to draw the straight line and prove that that's where do you— Right. Arguably, state-controlled media that Russian had— is arguably a better solution if you did, <laughs> if you if you didn't pump out shit at the same time. The, the difficulty with this conversation too is intelligent people tend to you know it's like you could well why don't people turn off why don't people make their own well they can if they're intelligent but if unfortunately and it's awful to throw away sentences like that but yeah if you ain't got a lot going on mentally well, yeah and you know in Russia is a prime example because the 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 state television there has been priming Russians for this war against Ukraine for a long time yeah, because they've been corruption. and saying they're Nazis. And again, we might think it sounds ridiculous because you can say, well, that's just an idiotic statement to call Ukrainians Nazis. But the Russian public has been drip fed this theory and this talking point for years and years and years. So and it fits with them. We keep they hearing think, you. Oh yeah, it makes sense. You know, of course you've got to go, of course you've got to go save Russia from these Nazis if you've been sort of groomed for years and years and the information or the disinformation that you consume is telling you that. But Courtney, you've got amazing knowledge and experience on the Ukraine. Obviously when the war broke out, there was massive press here. I feel like the press has calmed of late. I mean, I don't even know how many days there was a rolling counter going. Well, there's quite a lot of criticism that wasn't the same level for Syria. You know, sure, but but your hope, like you have knowledge, do you do you feel that it will end? Do you see a solution? Can normal people help? Is there anything we yeah. can do? Well, I think a, a few things. What you you say is true, and there is a risk and a, a, a worry on the you know Ukrainian side that people get bored with these things. So if it becomes a kind of simmering conflict, I mean, you know, also if you if you remember what happened. Eight years ago that Russia came in and seized Crimea and stirred up um, insurrection in the east of Ukraine. And everybody was like, oh, that's terrible. And everybody moved on and forgot. And Ukrainians all, you know, will say, we've been at war with Russia for eight years, but it's nice of you all to notice just because now they tried to bring tanks into Kiev. So there is a worry that people lose interest. They do. And it, and it was more confusing, Syria and the Crimea, they were very complicated conflicts that none of us really followed. You know, that, that, the difference, is, I always think uh, that the example of Hitler, everyone's like, oh, yeah, you know, bad person. And it's like, yeah, he was. He's one of the few people you can clearly point to was shouldn't have done what he did and he's definitely a bastard and we should have to stop him, you know. But every other war, every other conflict, it 
it's really hard to work out who's right. And yeah, wrong. and I think because people don't follow it and they don't know, and they think, yeah, it looks messy. They're fighting them. I don't know this. People could sort of say, yes, we have a villain, we have a victim yeah. country, we have an aggressor country, we get that. As to where and how it can end, I mean, I think that it can. This the, the military aid, and interestingly, as an aside, you know, the UK is wildly popular because the UK has been sending serious, serious kit. For and a long time, for, right? and, Even and before. early on, yeah. early on. Um, so there will there will be streets named Boris Johnson Avenue, they're already talking about that in multiple places. So whatever the... Can't they name it uh, Queen Elizabeth? Well, you know what hope. But anyway, what I'm saying is that the weapons matter, the support matters, and it can swing this in Ukraine's continued favor, but not if people lose interest in that appetite for um, continued continued support and sending... Weapons. Huge amounts it's of money. It's huge. And I was learning about like the price of rockets and all yeah. of it. I mean, it's like millions of pounds. Boom. Yeah, well, and I, there um, will be a pressure from the public. So, you know, the U.S. just signed this $40 billion package of support. And again, right now, Americans tend to be, um, oh, yeah, you know, let's support Ukraine. They'll get tired of that very quickly and say, why are you sending money overseas when we're struggling here? So I worry about that fatigue. Um, I don't know how or where it ends, and there'll be pressure on Ukraine to, you know, come up with a, a face-saving agreement for Russia. But why should they do that at this point? It it does become like, you know, the atrocities committed against Ukrainians, the the Russian military and Putin. They are the Nazis. This is Hitler level stuff, in my view. That I mean, so why why should Ukraine negotiate with that? I mean, they they can't at this point. It's too existential um, as a threat to their individual personhood and their safety and their security as people. So I, I don't know. What do you do with that? How do you negotiate with that? So that was this week's episode of BWB Extra. Thank you to Courtney for joining us. A big thank you to you, dear listener. And we'll be back with a new episode next week. In the meantime, please rate and review us on Apple, follow us on Spotify, and find us on socials at bizwithoutbs. Until next time, it's goodbye.